Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of Sports with Friends. This is the one after the one. This is after the documentary that we put together for episode 300, uh, commemorating the, the previous 299 guests that we had on this show. Uh, for episode 301, we actually had somebody who technically, if this is a bit of a, a, of a complicated technicality, he was on Sports with Friends when I used to take radio shows and turn them into podcasts. That was what there was. This is the first time he's on organically as a Sports with Friends guest. Uh, I knew him when he was an up-and-coming sports writer. He is then merged into radio and television. He works with Fox. He works with MLB Network. He also works with NHL Network, which is remarkable. Uh, but I remember him as being a great guest then. He's an even better person, and that's the best thing about John Morosi. We can call him John Paul because that's what we used to call you. We can call you JP because that's what a lot of people I know call you. But now you're a big fancy. You're now you're John Morosi. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome to Sports with Friends. Seth, my friend, great to be here. Uh, you can call me any of those names that you'd like. Uh, I, I use all of those identities freely, uh, including some family <laughs> nicknames that we haven't even gotten a chance to, okay. to address yet. But yeah, John, John Paul, JP, they all work, my friend. Thank they you. They all work. And uh, you and, and the family's good. And, and you know, it, it, it's wild because you you have just you, you've gone up a ladder and you've become a bigger deal uh, covering a sport that I know is near and dear to your heart. With with guidance from you, Seth, uh, thanks as always for all your help, man. I, I really appreciate it. <laughs> Um, tell me about the beginning. Tell me about the idea of what you wanted to do. What did you want to be? And how did you get from that point to this point? Well, Seth, it's a great question. Certainly, it's a probably a podcast unto itself to try <laughs> to uh, parse my way through. Uh, oh, we don't fool around here. But but I will uh, I'll, I'll hit a couple of key points that stand out to me. Number one, uh, I would say, first and foremost, when I was in college, my degree was in environmental science and oh, public okay. policy. So yeah, environmental science and public policy, naturally, uh, a straight through line from that to, uh, to being a baseball and hockey broadcaster. But I, when I was in college, I had to have a work-study job to help pay for my tuition. And the most natural place for me to go was the sports department, the athletic department, because I came from a small town in Michigan. I was in this uh, in incredible campus outside Boston. And so I was in a different part of the country. I didn't really know a lot about uh, the culture there, but what I knew was sports and, and sports made me feel comfortable. And so I could speak the language of sports. And so that was my job. I, I kept the, the shot chart at the hockey games and eventually that uh, flowed into covering the team for the, for the Harvard Crimson. Um, I played on the JV baseball team there, which was a lot of fun. Actually, David Stearns, current Milwaukee GM, was, was my, one of my teammates there. Oh, wow. uh, so it was a fun team to be on. We had a lot of fun. Um, and, and so it just grew from there, Seth. I basically said to myself, okay, uh, originally I thought about obviously environmental science, public policy, politics, law, something along those lines, education even. But then I realized that, man, this whole business of writing about something I love and going to hockey games and going to baseball games is pretty amazing. And I'm going to do this until someone tells me it's time to grow up and get a real job. Now, that hasn't happened yet. Might happen today, might happen tomorrow. But the key thing is, and what I tell 
people who are young and want to get in the business, just, just do that which you love as long as you can. Pour your passion, your heart and soul into it. Learn different aspects of the business. Here we are on a podcast, which when you think about it, if I was going writing, radio, TV, podcasts, it's, it's multiple steps removed from what I initially thought I was going to do. And as we've talked about before, my my passion and my belief in the importance of, of, of learning Spanish to cover baseball, you have to keep diversifying your skill set to then grow and meet a new challenge. And when when the when the phone call comes or when the, the boss calls you into their office and says, hey, can you do this? The answer needs to be yes. The, the answer needs to be yes, I can do it. And if that means that you have to spend the next two weeks studying something to actually be able to do it, then you do it. And, and I think it was that combination, Seth, of, of being around a lot of really talented people in college who for whom taking on the world and, and changing the world was a natural thought when they woke up in the morning that, that I thought, well, wait a minute, if I'm going to hang out with these kids, I better, I better come up with something cool of my own volition and, and, and pursue it with that same level of intensity and passion and enthusiasm and joy. And so I've just tried to bring that to every day of what I do here. And, and I think the final thought too, in, in terms of perspective that I'll offer about just life, uh, you know, my, my wife is a doctor. So as a family, we have dealt with with this pandemic in a unique fashion over the last year where we have three young children and, and my and on most days my most important job is making sure that they are doing what they're supposed to do from a education and health standpoint to allow my wife to do what she's supposed to do and what she is passionate about doing which is helping people who are in really tough shape and and so for me I, I've, I've had the realization, I've always had it, Seth, but I think especially in the last year that if there's a game that I can't go to because of something we got going on here and, and helping her out, um, I think with a pretty good degree of certainty, Seth, the game will still happen, okay? We're, we're not going to say we got to cancel the game because Morosi's not here. That's that's not going to happen. Yeah. But but if my wife doesn't show up at the hospital, we got problems. And so um, that's basically where I'm at with, with all this. I mean, obviously my... My job means the world to me. I love the people I work with. I love baseball. I love hockey. It's an incredible blessing for me to do this. But I also have had a lot of reminders in the last year not to take myself too seriously. I mean, I, I take I, I take seriously my obligations to viewers and readers and listeners. I understand what baseball and what hockey mean to the lives of people, and I get that. And I'm, I'm never going to forget that. But I also, you know, re realize fully every single day that when I talk to my kids about what we're all doing here, especially over the last year, it's not, wow, look how, look how cool dad's job is. It's wow. Look at what mom's doing every single day. And let's, let's all try to be more like mom. And that, that includes me. So I, I think that that ethic to pass on to them is hugely important. And I hope that if I've done anything in the last year, it's to make sure she goes to work and it's to make sure that our kids realize what she's doing at work. Did you, when when we scheduled this podcast, uh, it had to be around her schedule, which I loved. It wasn't because of your radio appearances or or television appearances and such. What I what I wanted to know, though, is given her constant exposure to covid, mm -hmm. was it your responsibility to 
isolate her from the kids? Did you don't have to get too personal, but just sure. this idea that if if you are the primary person that's supposed to maintain their safety and she's going into the front lines, I mean, in, in essence, every day yeah. for months, your responsibility is to make sure those kids don't go near her. Right. Uh, well, that's that's a great question. And the answer is there were weeks where where certainly last I think it was right around this time last April, May, Michigan was obviously very hard hit. Uh, so basically that was probably the most intense time. There were other times when, when numbers would spike and she would have a lot of COVID patients. There, there were some weeks where she didn't have COVID patients. There were some weeks where that was all she saw. It, it, it was really sort of variable based on the circumstances on the ground. And, um, and so when it was a really difficult week, we sort of had the understanding that when she got home, I was to keep the kids in a different part of the house until she had mm -hmm. a chance to put her clothing in a different room, shower, and and then once that happened, then she was able to, to see them. But we never got to the point where it was like you had to spend the entire day in a different part of the house. Well, it was the great unknown. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and it probably your your protocol in April of last year probably changed by June, July, and, it did. and so on. It did, it did. And so um, it, it did it did change it evolved as as we got more information but we certainly there were times where and the girls knew this listen we can't get close to mom until after she's had a chance to take a shower and even then it was also giving her time to decompress a little bit yeah, it's, it's kind of tough when you know she was dealing with with life and death decisions all day long and then you get home and, and you you want to be mom for your kids it's nice to kind of have a little bit of a little bit of a buffer at least to be able to uh, take a shower and, and kind of decompress a little bit. And so it was, it was certainly tough, Seth. There's no question about it. And, and, and you're right. Things did, did change uh, as, as the year went along. And certainly in this year, now that vaccinations have been out there, it's been just a tremendous relief. But I also, when I was traveling last year, I mean, I, I had to be, had to be careful when, when I was yeah. traveling for baseball, which, which I did. I, I drove a lot. I flew a little bit. And so it was never a case of, uh, you know, Seth, I, I don't mean to ever um, downplay what the different governmental regulations were in different municipalities or states where I was, but I just followed my wife's directions all the time because that right. was whatever it was the highest standard anyway. I mean, there was there was never a standard anywhere else that was going to rise to her level, and so I said, okay, here's where I have to go. What do I do? And we made a plan and we just stuck with it. And that's, that's really, it was that simple. It wasn't an issue of, well, if this is the case, do this or that. It was, okay, what do I do? And she would tell me and I, I followed the, the rules. Uh, and, and even we were even careful after the World Series. I, I, I spent a couple nights in the hotel before I got back to the house. Uh, I'd been gone for a while. Obviously, the, the, the ending of the World Series was rather surreal. And so uh, I just, out of an abundance of caution, stayed at a hotel for a couple of days. And it was, and it was fine. We just... We, the, 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 the sentiment that I always had Seth last, last year, especially in this year too, is that as long as we take the right precautions, then we have a chance to still do a lot of things that we love. And that was, that was my mantra, uh, make some adjustments. I think sports and baseball give us that understanding of framework of, uh, we're going to make adjustments and do the best we can. And, and that's really what I think a lot of us have been doing the last 14, 15 months, make adjustments do the best you can and, and, and move on and, and have a lot of grace and compassion for those who are going through a tough time. And so th that's really been, been how we've tried to handle things here. And I, I think on measure, I'm, I'm really proud of the way that 
our family's handled everything and most of all proud of her. Did you get the sense? I mean, let's just open up Pandora's box here. Let's just go here. I was against the 2020 season. I thought that baseball was unable to have the bubble like the NBA and the NHL did. And I didn't like that. It seemed like the emphasis was on the owners continually saying how broke they were, which as somebody who worked there for a while, I know they're not broke. They're not eating ramen noodles for dinner. Um, the, the aspect of 2020, what I was hoping the sport would do would I, I jokingly said that Tony Clark and Rob Manfred should lock themselves in a hotel quarantine for 14 days or whatever the protocols were at the time, hammer out a collective bargaining agreement, take that off the table and come back in 2021 when things would be hopefully much, much better, as we saw in April of 2021. Um, the season felt hodgepodge. It felt like it was playing with the great unknown. Did you get the sense? And what? let me let me add a caveat to it. I thought the media, especially print journalists, were talking about the need to see baseball like their jobs depended on it, not seeing it for the big picture. I was pro the bubbles. I was pro the NBA bubble and the NF NHL bubble. I thought those were really smart. I loved how the NHL extended their collective bargaining agreement by four years with Don fear on the other side. It, it, there's a lot there. And I just thought this 2020 season was really awkward and hard to digest. You saw it from a much different perspective. So I respect your opinion. It's, it's, it's moot point now because the season right. happened, but I just thought the whole thing was really, really compromised. I'm glad they played. I think that there was, there were certainly complexities there. There were certainly moments early on with the Marlins outbreak that were very concerning. I think a couple things. Number one, by playing the league and the players became the first league that actually started and finished the full season during the pandemic. So they were the first league to actually start. I think it's a fundamentally different question, how you handle a playoff scenario, which is what the NBA and NHL did versus having to start your entire season. I think that to, to not play at all would have been obviously difficult from a standpoint of, the league's operation, revenues, media, everything. It would have been difficult. The players would have lost out on a full year of salary. There would have been a lot of very difficult consequences there. Was it perfect? I don't think anything in American life was perfect in 2020. And so I think that there's there were things that were learned. There were protocols that were embraced. I think that when you consider between it was right around what the end of August into September and then through right up until the final game there were basically no positives for a matter of weeks upon weeks and i think that there was a positive demonstration seth i believe by the way that players handled the protocols yes there were some isolated outbreaks that happened yes but by and large you look at the the positivity rate of of the baseball tier one population it was exceedingly low and, and what that proved to me is that pre-vaccine, there were very stringent protocols put in place. 
players, executives, all team members had to abide by very strict protocols, including masking, distancing, et cetera. And, and one thing that was very powerful in that is there were certainly people, I'm sure, among the playing population who, absent those protocols, would not have done them on their own. Right. They would a, not have. A they baseball would not clubhouse have is like a uh, high school cafeteria, and it's as div divided as our country was. That's how divided each clubhouse was. Correct. There, there's there's a, a wide range and diversity of opinion on a lot of matters there. But what we saw was an agreement from MLB and the union that said, "Listen, your your opinions personally on this, you you are entitled to whichever opinion you wish, but your behavior." will be uniform. Your behavior will conform to what the science says we have to do. And in that respect, yes, there were some missteps, but by and large, the vast majority of players and teams were extraordinarily compliant, successfully so, and the, the commissioner's trophy was awarded. We had a World Series. And even at the end, there were fans there. It, it, was, it was quite a thing. To witness and so was it was it perfect uh, again i don't think anything was entirely perfect in 2020 and, and that's a standard that really could not be met by anybody in, in american life but i really believe that under the circumstances both sides did a very admirable job and i think that seth to your point about the the future and and, and labor relations is there an agreement right now no but both sides i believe have the understanding that last year they negotiated through an unprecedented challenge together under very adverse circumstances and still made a deal that allowed the game to get back on the field. I would like to think that in the back of their minds, if there's a critical moment later on this year, they reflect back and say, you know what? We, we, we lost half a season, more than half a season. We came back and played. And if we could do that in 2020, darn it, we should be able to find a way to get okay. this 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 back moving forward for 2022 and beyond. Let's put a pin in that because I think the 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 second part of this conversation will will, will reference this. Um, how has your job changed? And from a distance, as somebody who's not in the ballparks as much anymore, simply because of COVID, really, um, I think that the teams. The, the gauge I've been getting is that the teams really dig the, not necessarily the zooms, but they like the idea of keeping the media out of the clubhouse, uh, bringing two or three, four players to a podium and have press conferences every, every night. Uh, now they're on zoom. So it's, it's very, very different. What I've noticed is there's less profiles of the shortstop in Milwaukee. There's less storylines because I've seen you do your job and you do it really, really well. I have made my baseball relationships just from hanging out, from mm -hmm. being in clubhouses, from being in the field, just hanging out. When I was in my twenties, I hung out socially with players. I, I, I make no secret about that. That was, but Twitter didn't exist. Instagram didn't exist. It was not, it was a different world. Is your job that much harder because you can't go up to, Aaron Boone or, or, or I'm just picking random managers. Uh, <laughs> uh, you, you can't go out to Bud Black. You can't just sit there and sit with him all alone for 20, 30 minutes 
picking his brain about something he sees with his team or with the game or whatnot. Has that been lost? And what's your thought on that? Well, it certainly has changed. And, and Seth, this is going to be a really pivotal several months ahead. Do we see a change at the all-star break in terms of what access looks like? Possibly. By being in the bubble last year in October at the World Series, I was able to eventually get back on the field and have baseball conversations with players again, which was extraordinary. That The, the ability to be on the field and, and just have a baseball conversation with members of the Dodgers and the Rays and, and the Braves uh, before the end of the NLCS was incredible. And it was just those, exactly as you're describing, the spontaneous conversation, hey, you know, where'd you go to college? Who'd you play with in college? Who'd you play with in high school? Those sorts of conversations were, were wonderful to have again. And, and to your point, as I tell stories now on MLB Network or MLB Network Radio, it's important for me to constantly revive those contacts, whether it's by reaching out to a college coach, reaching out to an agent, reaching out to an executive. I have to fill in the blanks. Whereas I used to be able to just walk up to a player and say, tell me your story, basically. Johnny, and, tell me this about you. Is that true? Right, you know, that right exactly. And, and so we just have to see how it unfolds. I, but do I, you I do think, think the players like it better? Uh, that's because a of social media and the clicks and the and the distrust that seems to be evolving pre-pandemic. I think that there are a variety of opinions on that. I, I actually spoke with one PR person earlier this year who said that one compromise could be that the clubhouse or at least the field would be open before the game for a period of time. This is probably not now, but maybe second half of this year, maybe into the future, maybe there's like a, a field access time or a clubhouse access time before the game, but that possibly the clubhouse would be closed after the game. And I actually think that there is that. merit that's, to that. that's, that's totally fine because before the game is when you get your work done. After Correct. the game is just the reactions. Correct. So if the idea is to try to eliminate a little bit of time, whether it's for uh, ease of, of contact or, or, for COVID-19 related reasons to limit exposure time, then I could see if, if we, if we had to choose between open clubhouse before or after it's open clubhouse before a hundred times out of a hundred. Oh. And then the post game could be done on zoom and, and you could have players come in who are relevant to the or game in a podium room, manager, which exactly. all the stadiums have. Exactly. And so for me, it's, there have been, days where news event happens and I know that I want to talk about this team on the show tomorrow morning I can log into their post game zoom and ask a couple questions and so there's there is a certain nimbleness that goes into that uh, is it harder for me to prepare when I'm doing a, a sideline reporting uh, game for MLB network or, or for YouTube yeah it's a little different I don't have quite the same amount of access time uh, traveling is different. Uh, I've, I've done a little bit more, more regional travel driving. Uh, so that's been a little different. Um, there also, I suppose on some level there's, there's, if the access isn't available to you, you might feel less pressure to be at a particular venue at a particular time. And you might spend that time instead watching more games. 
having a better survey of the of the entire league at a given time. So you're preparing differently. The, the standards of, of what you should be able to convey on the air from a personal story standpoint, if you don't have the access, it's hard to really second guess myself as to what I'm presenting. So it's, it's, it's a different different way to do your job for sure. Uh, I, I have felt an extraordinary amount of gratitude to just be at the ballpark again. I, I was counting up recently. I've already been to eight stadiums this year, which is incredible. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I feel very blessed to say that. And, and I, I even had that thought this week that if, if you had told me a year ago that by this time in May of 21, I would have been to eight stadiums and I'd be fully vaccinated Again, these these are things that a year ago were were hard to comprehend. Our, our minds were just spinning about what the future held, and and here we are with a, with a good number of things that we love doing back in our lives thanks to the vaccine. So that's why I, I am constantly, obviously, as we talked about earlier, aware through my wife's work as as to what is happening at the hospitals and and what the researchers are doing. It's just extraordinary gratitude uh, really and, and feeling fortunate that we've got it and so now now Seth the, the question I come back with is what do we do with it how do we properly convey our our gratitude and our platform to say okay now we're back now we're able to be around family again more hopefully one day be around fellow broadcasters and and be around players and coaches and managers again let's not forget the lessons that we talked about last year about about looking out for each other and and telling stories with a with a great degree of empathy and, and thoughtfulness, that's our job now. And, and I think that whatever whatever tools we have, clubhouse access or not, it's it's our job to make the best of what we've got every day. And I think that uh, I certainly through my parents and and my wife as well, it's it's a lot. It, we have to orient ourselves around more of the question of how do we show gratitude for what we've got as opposed to being frustrated about how things are not maybe a hundred percent the way we want them to be. Very eloquent. Um, you've become more eloquent in your, in your, as you, as you've aged in, in uh, my old age. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's exactly it. Um, we'll get back to sports with friends in just a moment, but first, did you know that I have another podcast that I do? It's like sports with friends, but it's a little different. It's about the superhero sci-fi universe. I have been a fan of comic books, animation, movies, and when I started the Hall of Justice podcast, we wanted to do it for adults. Why did I name it the Hall of Justice? Because if you're old enough to know what the Hall of Justice is, you're our demographic. The idea of the show is to take the same passion that fans have for sports, but to bring it to the superhero genre. We have movie reviews where we spoil the movie. No worry, we warn you so that you can see it first. We also have celebrity guests where we interview actors, voice actors. The Hall of Justice podcast comes out every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. I remember when the when the pandemic first happened, uh, I didn't know what to do. And one of the store, the two stories, well, there were three stories that I really, really loved. Uh, number one, remember when Rudy Gobert licked the microphones of the five I guys? I call that story. Yeah, we had one of the five microphones that was licked. Uh, uh, ben Anderson from the Utah Jazz uh, Radio Network. We put him on and he was the story. If you listen back to that podcast, this is more for the audience. If you listen back, like the unknown about COVID at the time and what he didn't know then, what I didn't know either um was remarkable the other one was if you remember the night 
that sports shutdown when the NBA suspended its season. Right. Ryan Rucco, a mutual friend of ours, Ryan Rucco was uh, calling the Nuggets uh, Mavericks game. And to have him on at, shortly after that with the great unknown of what he was doing and the poise that he showed, you know, not losing sight, not losing sight of the perspective of everything I thought was amazing. And then we did a month of the busiest people in sports who were climbing the walls of their houses. So like Kenny right. Albert, uh, Iron Eagle guys who like do 300 nights a year. And you know, uh, Chris Majkowski of the Mets radio network, uh, Madge, Madge was two episodes. He, he does 300 nights a year. He wow. does the Mets, the Giants, the Knicks, the Rangers, St. John's, the Olympics. He does all that stuff. And he had been home for months. He, he didn't have any place to go. And we did a month of just busy people, just people that would never be able to come on the podcast, not because they didn't want to, but just they didn't have a minute to breathe. And uh, the, 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 those were some of the most therapeutic things during that whole lockdown. You know what I mean? Just just being able to get those messages out. That kid whose microphone Rudy Gobert licked. I'll never forget that conversation. And he just he was sitting in his living room and he ran out of his house because he didn't know what his exposure was. And he has kids in the house. Oh, my God. It was right. Oh, it, it, it was incredibly surreal. Actually, I was um, just uh, going back to, to revisit um, the show that we did on MLB Network Radio the day when baseball shut down. So that mm -hmm. would have been the 12th mm -hmm. of March. Um, and I was co-hosting with Adnan Verk that day. And we oh, were, we were, yeah, great guy. We were going just through and, and you think about how the show began and then how the show ended and not knowing how long the shutdown would be. I, I think in moments like this, I go back to some great advice that I got from Brian Anderson, great friend of mine, obviously good guy. outstanding extraordinary good guy. broadcaster. Yeah. I mean, truly one of the absolute best people and broadcasters in the business. And, and Brian early in my career, said when it comes to breaking news or, or a fluid situation that you have to be a good servant of the information that you know to be true it may not be the most gratifying to mm. to restate or or to have to step back and reset what we know for sure but at a time like that that was what we had to do uh, and even though even though before and to some extent still today, even before we went on the air that day, obviously for weeks before that, I had been speaking with, with, with my wife extensively about what to expect, what's going to happen, where where is this all going to go? And she was pretty spot on about how things were going to unfold. And so I felt reasonably prepared as much as any sports broadcaster could about how to properly provide context to what was going on because I'd been living it in my house in preparation, bracing for this for days. But even then it was still a little jarring to, to see our, the sports that we cherish and the routines that we cherish going away. And uh, I remember Giancarlo Stanton in spring training, he wouldn't leave. They had closed down everything and he wasn't leaving. And he goes, and that's why we're going to be world series champs. And I go, Oh yeah, because you guys worked out during a pandemic. <laughs> well, we just didn't know. No, no one knew. I mean, I, I think that to me, Seth, there has to be a lot of grace for everyone. Uh, okay. I think 
in the last year because we just we didn't know what the right way to handle it was. Uh, and, and I think that we hopefully arrived at the at the point that that by looking out for each other that like that was the right course. Uh, and and however we could best do that, um, and certainly during the course of the summer, the way that so many people in the baseball family stepped forward and and really addressed racial inequity and injustice in our country and, and Jason Hayward, I think about the things he did to bring people together. Uh, to me, one of the enduring images of last summer, of course, it was right around this time, was, was Jason and, a, and Jason Kipnis, both of them, of course, Jason Kipnis from the Chicago area, outside bringing together a, a conversation between community members of diverse backgrounds and the Chicago police in a healing circle, everybody wearing their mask, distanced outside and just talking. And I think when, when we ever ask about how people best use their platform, I, I, I go back to that snapshot of Jason and Jason together caring about their city and about the people and saying that what we need now is to be together in as safe a manner as we can, everybody wearing a mask and to be outside and to have a conversation. And I just thought that was extraordinary leadership. And, and I think that that's something that for me, when I see Jason Hayward bat now, when I see him play, that is that is now for me, as certainly the 2016 World Series is special for him, but the respect I have for him comes now number one on that list is that conversation. And the World Series is somewhere down the list. It's, it's the, the number one thing is that when his community was, was in need and that we needed leadership of how we do this, uh, in the middle of a pandemic to listen to each other, Jason did it. And he did it from his own own authentic leadership. And that's why I I, I look to him and have so much respect for him. Well, that's a great, great story. And I'm, I'm really appreciate you bringing that uh, to, to the show. Um, all right, let's depart from COVID. Um, a lot of sports, just sports questions. Sure. How do you find uh, working with the NHL has been? Uh, how... Did that come about, if you don't mind my asking? And just the idea, I've, you know, I started my career in hockey and I've always uh, thought that was a sport that had a loyal fan base. You know, they traditionally have the highest uh, time spent viewing of any of the team sports. Uh, they don't have the numbers that the NFL, for example, has. But when people tune in, they stay because they are loyal. Um, it's just, it's, a, it's such a fun sport to watch. What has been your exposure? I know you were a big hockey guy in the start, but how did the transition? Cause it's obviously the same employer. What, right. how did, how did, how did your baseball acumen uh, be translated into hockey? Well, great question. And I'm just lucky that obviously when the relationship started between the MLB and NHL network, I was around that time becoming a, a full-time employee at, MLB network, which means that once you're under one roof, you're under both. It's, right. it's effectively, um, as it's been operated, it, they're, they're together. And so my job still now is probably 90% baseball, 10% hockey, give or take, uh, maybe 85, 15, but it's, it's a lot, it's a lot on 
baseball. And then there are times in the hockey calendar world junior championships. I love working on features for that to help oh, cool. build the narratives around, around the young players representing team USA. Uh, I was honored to call the bio steel all American game with EJ Raddick here in, in nice. Michigan. EJ so I, I think, yeah, yeah a great, a great time with EJ. So it's for me, Seth, just growing up in Michigan, it's obviously a huge part of our culture here. And so it's a sport that while I really study up at specific times of the year, and this is one of them because I'll, I'll cover a, a playoff series here coming up, that it's I, I sort of uptick my study and really get into the, the players and the backgrounds uh, at select periods of the year, but I follow it generally all the time because when you grow up in Michigan, the yeah, wing certainly went in the cups yeah. exactly when I was when I was a teenager, and that was a very special time. And you know, here you get a chance to watch both networks. You can watch the the NBC feed, you can watch the CBC feed. On Saturday nights in our house, we've always got hockey on, and we're watching cool. the, the Habs. And so it's culturally, it's how I've grown up. My kids enjoy skating, and and so I I love the idea of of covering something that my kids can also relate to. Of course, they relate to baseball well as well. I, I coached one of my daughters in T-ball a couple summers ago. So it's 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 fun to be able to maintain that connection to both. And I find that when I jump back into hockey, it's a language that is is natural to me. It's it's a, it's a native language for me. Uh, whereas the people in the, the, the communities, the junior programs, the colleges, internationally, it's hockey people are so great. And so they, they always welcome me in and, and uh, it's a quick study when it, when it happens. And, and right now is, is one of those times. And, and so Seth, for me, it's, it's really, uh, I'm very fortunate that studying for me involves watching more hockey, which I would already do at baseline. Yeah. You would do it for fun. Um, last thing on, on hockey, the, the playoffs are, are undergoing. One of the things because of COVID they had to do was they limited their travel. I thought it was a really smart idea uh, having the teams play in these divisions. It was predicated on Canada because crossing the border is still not uh, a good deal. And it's obvious what will happen. And if you're listening to this podcast in the future, you know, you never know when people listen to these things. Um, tell us, uh, you, you know, you'll know how Canada dealt with the rest of the playoffs. What's probably going to happen is uh, whoever admit, advances from that North division is going to come to the United States, find an arena. I just personally am campaigning for the Prudential Center, but that's that's OK. That's not that's uh, it looks like it'll be Buffalo. Fine, Buffalo. Um, the uh, the but the playoffs have been uh, remarkable. And the only thing I've ever said about uh, hockey to anybody has always been, you know, watch it live. You'll fall in love with it. Like, they're, they're, you know, watch it live, go see a game and then look me in the eye and tell me it's awful. I'll never ask again. Um, the playoffs have been remarkable, but what the regular season has done is it's reinforced my affinity for rivalries. And this is not to belittle other teams, but as a New Jersey fan, just as an example, I circle the Flyers appearances on my calendar. I know when the Capitals are in town. I don't care if the Blue Jackets are here or not. It doesn't matter to me as much. And, you know, when I was with the Avalanche back in the 90s, you know, they had their rivals. They had team, you know, teams that they cared about. And I know in the West, it's all spread out. So it's not the same as in the East. So it's kind of a loaded question. Uh, and I asked it to Gary Bettman in episode 299, the last guest besides you. Um, but 
one of the things I think that hockey can sell better than other sports is its rivalries. And I just hope that when they go back to an 82 game schedule, there's more emphasis on the rivalry games. And if there's a year that the LA Kings don't come to the Prudential Center, I can live with that. That's fair. And I, I do think, of course, there's so many unknowns coming up. When does the Canadian border open more fully? You got 32 teams now with the Kraken coming in uh, and, and you want to, for example, nurture the Seattle Vancouver rivalry. That's going to be a you very would think. Special... right. You would think, but you have to be able to cross the border for that to happen, obviously. And then on, on the Buffalo angle, Buffalo Toronto has always been a very good rivalry. I think one of my favorite events I've ever covered was a Bruins Canadians playoff game at the bell center. That is a sensory experience. Okay. When, when you are at the bell center for a Habs playoff game and they're playing the Bruins, there is a level of intensity that is hard to find anywhere else in North America. And it's, it's the but, beautiful. But for the language. sake of the argument, let's assume, let's assume that th there's no restrictions that right. we can have a season regardless of, you know, COVID's not impacting. Okay. What about the idea that your team should play your rivals more than. I, I think that has been part of the wisdom of the scheduling in the past. Now, interestingly, I prefer, now this is my parochial, I'll put on my Michigan native hat here. That's fair. I, I like the schedule now as it's been in recent years, let's say circa 2018, 2019. I like that schedule for the Wings because they play the Canadians often enough. They play the Leafs often enough. Um, they don't play the Blackhawks any longer, which is a concern, yeah. but th they're at least playing three original six teams, Habs, Leafs, and Bruins relatively often. And it, if I have to sacrifice the, the Blackhawks rivalry to, to add in more games against Boston, Montreal, and Toronto, that's a trade I'll make. Plus the, the travel is just better. And, and they're, they're playing teams. But that you are don't more... need the Panther. You don't need the Panthers and the lightning but, coming but, that but often. You're right. But also Seth, you have to nurture rivalries and they'll develop you think about the lightning having played in in really big playoff series against boston that's not normally which has happened numerous times in the last several years that is not normally a rivalry that you that you look to or have looked to for 25 years but when you put stamkos and, and kucherov and vasilevsky you have a chance to, to develop a rivalry based on the personalities and the players and the teams. I, I think sometimes geo we should not confuse necessarily geography That's for, fair. for rivalry. You think about Colorado, what, Detroit in the night. Exactly. What did they have? What did those two cities ever have in common, Nothing. but for mutual dislike going back to the mid nineties and any, I would take it from another sports perspective who would have ever thought Seth that 20 years ago, there'd be a time when you were looking at your schedule and saying, oh my gosh, Golden State is going to play Oklahoma City. Oklahoma City didn't even exist as an NBA city at that point in time. And Golden State was for a long time an afterthought, but that became one of the preeminent rivalries in the NBA. I think we have to, you're right. You're looking at, at rivalries that exist and, and when they get exciting. I think that if, if Ovechkin and Crosby had come into the league playing for the Dallas Stars and the St. Louis Blues 
that would have been one of the defining rivalries of the last 20 that's years fair. because that's of fair. those two players. Great point. No, that's a, that's a great point. Um, I, I love it. And like I said, I could do a whole podcast with you on hockey. That would be an absolute blast. Uh, the, the big elephant in the room, uh, 2021 major league baseball, you get asked this all the time. I get asked this all the goddamn time and I don't have any answers. Um, Jason Stark was on sports with friends and he said that in 2018 major league baseball had 11,000 less balls hit in play than 2008. So JP, what we're not doing is we're not going back to the Mickey Mantle days or even the Don Mattingly days of, Oh, baseball was better than my day that we're not two old men sitting on a stoop in the last 10 years. There has been a metamorphosis in this sport. Uh, I'm less interested as to why I'm more interested in the, in, in the exorbitant numbers this year above all, it seems like this new baseball is causing for less home runs, but yet the approach is the same in these no hitters in these right now. There's six. By the time people listen to this, there could be 11. The reality of it is, is that what I remember from no hitters. And again, I've covered this sport for 27 years. I remember the fifth, sixth, seventh inning being the time when dugouts would rally and say, we are not going to be embarrassed like this, get a goddamn hit. And they would do whatever it took just to get on base, to get that hit. Nowadays, what I've noticed, I saw the means no hitter. I saw part of the Kluber one, the guy, the kid in San San Diego. I'm forgetting his name. The, The idea, the idea that in the fifth, sixth and seventh, these hitters are flailing with their Fakakta launch angle like they ever have. And you're seeing journeyman pitchers getting nine, 10, 11 strikeouts, but there seems to be no emphasis on contact and it is getting exorbitant. The other weekend I was doing some sports reports for iHeart. The kid on the Mets got the game winning single in the 12th inning. He had had eight straight strikeouts. The White Sox are playing the Yankees, 24 straight strikeouts. The Red Sox, 17 strikeouts. It's too much. And the amount of time between balls that are hit in play is at an all-time high. And I don't worry. I don't want to do a boring podcast where we talk about that extra inning stuff. That's not interesting anymore. That Everybody, let, let the pedestrians do that. What I'm asking you, as somebody who I've talked to for 20-plus years, do you see the same thing I see? And does the league see what everybody sees? Yes. And yes. And that's why we have seen different changes, studies, modifications coming in play, especially at the minor league level. The idea is that to change the major league product, you have to get at the root cause of the approach that we're seeing. Correct. And to your point, we used to see much better two strike approaches than we see now markedly. It's not even really protect the plate. That was a thing you were taught when you were nine. Right. Right. And so we're just, we're not seeing that we're seeing. There used to be a time in the game where you had your a swing for maybe the first pitch or first couple pitches. And then you had to protect with your B swing or your C swing. And that's just not, the way it works anymore. It, we are we are oriented collectively in how rosters are built, um, and analytics are part of this. The way rosters are built, the way the games are managed, 
it's it's power and it's and swinging and missing is okay and what you're going to have to do Seth is at some point whether it's a dramatic change like starting everybody at a one-on-one count which might be as good of an idea as anything else right now until the rewards are altered whether it's financial or winning the the behavior will continue to be the same now they're they're teaching it though well, and that's that is true because on some level, it's, lo- it's not rogue players taking they, matters into their own hands. Correct. They now now they describes in that case p- perhaps personal hitting coaches, maybe not every hitting coach, because what I would say, Seth, and this is the interesting part of this that I think gets overlooked, and where and where I would hope GMs do not forget the lessons not of the halcyon days of of your but of recent history. The 2018 Red Sox won that World Series because they excelled in the realm of two strike, two out hits. The Washington Nationals in 2019, Howie Kendrick, right? Mm -hmm. Veteran hitters who understood how to take an at-bat in those key situations at Dodger Stadium and in Houston. Adam Eaton, Howie Kendrick, Ryan Zimmerman, veteran players. And I think that there, there have been some moments where we watch the way the World Series plays out. We watch the way October plays out. And then there's a pause. And then rosters are built in the way that they had been for a long time. I always say, people ask me, and it's kind of a, it's a funny way to answer the question, but it's, but it's true. I'll be asked, Seth, who my favorite baseball team is. It's a question that people like you and me get often. Who's your favorite team? Well, and I say, listen, it's true. I grew up in Michigan as a fan of the Tigers as a kid. That's, that's true. That's part of my biography. Mm-hmm. But if you were to ask me, who is your favorite team? My favorite team in recent vintage was the 2014, 2015 Kansas city Royals because of the way they played. They played exciting defense. The ball was almost always in play. They rarely struck out. They they made it to the World Series, Seth, know, in 2014, finishing last. Nobody in the emulated runs. them, John. Nobody emulated them. They don't seem to care. General managers have said their job is to produce runs and win games, not to entertain us. They're, but they're, that team won. That was the thing. That team won. I get it. I get it. The the okay. This this shift. I, I don't want to have to police the shift. I don't like legislating gimmicky rules, but the reality of it is, is that if the analytics show that if, you know, if John Morosi's at the plate, we know 80% of the time he's going to hit the ball to one spot. You're going to move an extra guy to be at that one spot. It's pretty simple math. The idea though, is if you outlawed it and put an imaginary line from home plate to straightaway center field, and the only people that could cross the line are the center fielder, the pitcher, and the catcher, just hear me out. If you did it and you told hitters that there's only going to be one guy, and if you are trying to get on base, you will do so if you hit the ball hard, even if it is on the ground. If you re-incentivize these guys to have higher batting averages, what the outlawing of the shift would do is in, in essence, give extra incentives for these hitters 
to not just rely on this. Like you said, it reintroduce an A swing, a B swing, and a C swing, knowing that when you have two strikes, this feast or famine mentality is just not working. And I would take that shift and I, I would try that. If you want to try something in the minor leagues, try that. You don't have to move the mound. You don't have to move the fences. You don't have to move the batting cages. You don't have to do any of those things. Those cost money. My thing, you just have an imaginary line and you call a legal defense. To me, I don't want to have to do it. But when you see what they're teaching at the minor league level, and John, no one sees it more than you. You see what they're teaching. The only way to get rid of that thing is to outlaw it. Right. And I would be on board with the shift being outlawed. Part of the reason, Seth, is this. We love the game. You think about what is a baseball play. Is a baseball play when from the dugout, the bench coach, manager, infield coach hollers out with a two-strike count. You have to move from your side of the field to the other side of the field. Is that is that a baseball play? Or is a baseball play when the shortstop, after reading three or four swings from that hitter in the game, shades a step or two up the middle? What's a baseball play? The latter is a baseball play. That's a baseball play. That's the kind of thing that growing up in my small town of Michigan, I was taught to do. Just like growing up, we the, the catchers were also taught again in the small town where I came from to call your own game, develop a feel for what your pitcher has on that day and call the pitches because that's that's it. That's playing the game. And, and I just think, Seth, that whether it's at the youth level or at the major league level, we are taking decisions off the field and putting them into the dugout. And, and I think we have to ask ourselves, what is the essence of the game? Are we respecting and and honoring the heritage of the game as it's been played, which belongs to the players? My, my, there are so many different debates, Seth, that, that go on in the game right now, okay? Whether it's bat flipping, celebrations, things like that. If you can swing at 3-0 when the game's out of reach and there's a position player on the mound, all of these things, they, they seem rather disparate in, in some ways. But to me, Seth, I, I define them in this way. The game belongs to the players. Let's let them be themselves. Let's not dictate from the dugout that you have to move here. Let's let the shortstop make that decision. Let's not say to the catcher when, he, when the catcher is 17 years old, you have to call a breaking pitch here. Why? Let the catcher make his own decision there. That's part <laughs> of the position. That's the essence of the spot. Well, I don't and, want to and, have you on for two hours, but the managers have totally changed. You right. don't have Buck Showalters and you don't have those right. ter- uh, uh, Lou Pinellas and, and, and Terry Collins. Now you have young guys like Tori Lovello, like Dave Roberts. You have young guys who can relate to today's players and they follow instructions from on high. Well, and again, the, the, there, there is certainly some of that in the game. And I also say that as the, the, the point I was going to make about the bat flips and three and oh, those sorts of things, let the players be themselves. Let no, let, one, right. play, no if, one cares about that. Right. If, if Jeremy Mercedes wants to hit and swing three and oh, because he's happy to be in the major leagues after a long journey from the minor leagues, let him swing. This, this game belongs to the players. I, I am, I am not showing up to the ballpark 
to watch the manager make decisions. I'm there with my family to share the stories about the athleticism and the wisdom and the creativity and the stories of the players on the field. I want to be able to tell my kids, hey, this person signed a contract at 16, came to our country, has worked so hard to pursue this dream, and look at how his style of play is unique and special and differs from the style of play you see that the left fielder is playing. They're unique people that let's watch their stories unfold before us and teach our kids about the uniqueness and and special qualities in each player. And let's not override that by some conformist method of playing the game. I I just, I I believe in in letting the players authentically play and be and entertain and express themselves with joy. Like we don't need to impose other methods or ideas on them. Just let them play. And that's, and I, I hope that my kids will learn that uh, and, and that part of the game uh, absent whatever um, sort of uh, analytics or, or other customs sort of prescribe the way the game should be played at any level going up to the highest one. All right. I have two questions, one topic, and, 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 I'm tr- and I'll try to go as fast as I can and you can be as brief as you need to be. The, my biggest concern for this sport I'm 47 when I'm let's use 45 just for the sake of the argument. It gives me two extra years when I'm 75, the kids who are 15 today will be 45. They will not have the same passion that we had growing up. They just, they simply won't marketing of these players is uniquely different than what I remember in the past. I've told radio stations that they could come out and win a give, give away a t-shirt play a soundbite from Mike Trout and just say, who's the first guy that can identify him. Um, but if you play the same, same soundbite of Barry Bonds, Sammy Sosa, Derek Jeter, David Ortiz, you name them, they would all, people could recognize them instantly. And they haven't played for five to 10 years. It, why are so many stars and you might not be the right person to ask this, but why are so many of the stars anonymous nobody knows who Acuna Acuna is Fernando Tatis has not taken over the world the 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 interest level and it doesn't trend on social media it there's there's things that are missing and as somebody who spent 27 years covering this sport it doesn't resemble the same sport anymore well a couple things uh I do think Seth that in some ways there are still popular followings for a lot of players nationally. It's just, we don't see them in the same way. You're seeing players listing non-fungible tokens. No, no, give me, give me one example. Seriously. Tatis, Tatis put one out there. I, I am not even sure Seth. No, no, not of the NFTs. I'm talking about, give me one player who has a huge national following. Well, I'll, I'll tell you this. I, first of all, I think Tatis could, could have, uh, could develop one. Maybe, you know, you know who actually has, I I do think if you look at Trout's number of Twitter followers, he still is up around a million. That's pretty good. Okay. One of the greatest followings in baseball is actually for you Darvish because it's international. That's an international following. Okay. I believe that some of baseball's best growth 
in the future can be international. I also I'm think that for it. when you when you are around players, when you're around, and I, and I think certainly I'll say this: when I visit Williamsport for for Little League World Series, Little League Classic, you do feel that that renewal. And certainly th- these kids are having the time of their lives are playing in the Little League World Series. I get it. But, but they know who these players are. They, they know the players and the players get this rejuvenation of their passion for the game by being there. So I, I, I do think it's just experienced differently, Seth. I, I, I think the game in some ways, you look at youth participation numbers, at least pre-pandemic, were still extraordinarily strong. The, the narrative was that baseball was dying and soccer was taking over everybody. And that actually is not borne out by the numbers. Baseball, especially regionally, when you look at the Southeast, California, Texas, okay, uh, exceptionally strong. So I, I think that is th- Jacob Degrom a star in New York. But that so that that's a good question. I think he is among among Mets fans. I think he does have a, a certain following again at, at a more limited basis nationally. But this gets at the question of what baseball is and and how it is presented. I, I firmly believe it is it is still at this point most emotionally connected at the local and regional levels that is that is what it is right now at least that's what it has become and and i'm not sure no matter how prominent the star is or what the personality is it is a difficult thing and this is something i've defended baseball on for a long time following an nfl team or player whether it's fantasy football etc if you're going to follow a team you mentioned the giants earlier if you follow the new york giants that is three to four hours of one day of your week. Okay. Understood. You're going to follow the Mets. That's 22 hours of your week, give uh-huh. or take. And if you're then asking that same person to develop a, a, a connection to watching every Mike Trout game, that's times two. Fans simply do not have 45 to 50 hours a week to devote to one sport. They just don't have it. The, the what football has in their favor is that if if you're living in a big NFL town, if I got a job in Buffalo and I want to be able to talk with my colleagues at work on Monday, I can do that by watching three hours of the Bills and that's it. Not 45 that, that we're talking about here if you're going to watch your team and then also Mike Trout. It's it's a big ask that is frankly, Seth, in many ways not compatible with the way a lot of us live our lives now. And, and that's where I think I'll point to the success and the number of times, check how many times the MLB app is opened in a week and how old the the fans are. They're checking it. They're they're following the game. It's just in a different way than the way that we followed the NBC game of the week back in 1986. No, no, no. That's not the comparison. Okay. I got to, I got to try one more time. Okay. I, I don't, I'm not asking baseball to be 1986. I, 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 yes, I miss that too. I grew up with that too. I miss that. That's not it. What I'm saying is Jose Altuve is not a big deal in, in Houston. I'm saying Acuna is not a big deal. Even in Atlanta, Aaron judge is not a big deal in New York, because if you've seen these things over the course of the years, you've seen what Jorge Posada is a bigger star than Aaron judge was or is there there's a there's an anonymity that has developed amongst baseball and i think the evidence is it's it gets the most scrutiny for its gameplay 
because the NBA has all kinds of problems. The NFL has all kinds of problems, but nobody's talking about those. What they talk about is LeBron James's political stance or whether or not he got the vaccine. No one's talking about the, you know, Doug Glanville was on this podcast recently. He said he's watching a Denver game and Jamal Murray, they're down by two. He gets a steal. He's on a three on O and he stopped up to take a three. Like what? Like <laughs> that's a whole other issue altogether. What I think has happened is the reaction to the slowness and the 11,000 less balls hit in play, I think is having a domino effect. And I fear for this sport's health. I, I do think, Seth, that the sport, I really believe the sport is still healthy. I also believe it can become healthier with better, with better action, ratios of action to time spent. And that's why we're seeing the league trying. I mean, they, they, are, they are trying as hard as they can via the, via the minor league changes and then in discussions with the union about the way the game could look next year. We have we have in the sport right now, a lot of robust conversation about how the sport's going to look going forward. And I'm sure some of the data that you're sharing about popularity, et cetera, will come up in, in bargaining. And I think that it's important that both sides realize the partnership that has to exist. And I think they will. It comes because back to, to bargaining. Point, yep. There, there totally. is, there is, there's mutual benefit to be derived if they're on the same page with how the sport is marketed. And I'll say as well that, that to your point, one structural part of the game that is different from that is different in baseball than in basketball, football, or hockey for that matter, is that when I turn on a Yankee game right now, I don't know just from turning it on how soon I might see Aaron Judge back. If you're trying to, to marry my, my following of a sport to a player, to one player, that one player in the span of a three, three and a half hour game will bat four or five times, might make a handful of plays in the field, unless it's a starting pitcher where there's a fascination. No, I, I understand. I understand. It, it's, it, you're, it much, it's much easier to say, you want to watch LeBron? Turn on your TV now. He's going to be on. He's, the he's, a, he's on. Right. Eventually he'll be on. David play. Within, within 10 minutes. Right. Exactly. McDavid might, he might be on the bench now, but guess what? His next shift is coming up in two minutes. There is there is a fluidity to those sports where you're going to see if I want to watch Tom Brady play every time the Bucks have the ball, I watch Tom Brady. But the, that's where the problem lies in the bullpens being so powerful and the percentages of comebacks are so small so that if you only have 30 minutes to give to a baseball game, you're get, you're asking for probably innings one through three or one through four, whereas in hockey or basketball or football if you said i only have 30 minutes to watch the monday night game you say give me the last five minutes of the game there's a very different different thing um social media has been your power superpower uh you get news out as fast as anybody out there you do a great job with it um i did want to have a longer conversation but we went off on tangents which i knew we would uh, okay. about how you have embraced social media amidst all the toxicity 
but how can people find you and how can people interact with you? Thank you, Seth. Yes, I am on Twitter at John Morosi, J-O-N-M-O-R-O-S-I. Uh, same uh, same screen name on Instagram as well. I'm still oh, oh, learning about Instagram, Seth. I, I'm not at all an You Instagram and I are Instagram expert. idiots. Don't worry. We don't have to talk I, I, about Instagram. I'm still working on it. But uh, <laughs> tell you what, Seth, it's, it's it's been great catching up, my friend, as always. And and keep the conversation going. I love the format of this show that we're, we're, we're talking among friends. And I think that, that the last year has really emphasized that the wisdom of that, the importance of that, staying connected. So uh, certainly my family, we all send our very best wishes to you and yours. And uh, looking forward to our next conversation as well. Well, and folks, do me a favor. If there's anything you heard in this podcast that you have an issue with, reach out to John directly and leave me the hell out of it. There you go. I'm I'm more than happy to be the ombudsman there and, and, and listen to your uh, to your thoughts there. Uh, good, bad, indifferent. Uh, You're the all best. Love hearing from uh, listeners and viewers. I, I, I appreciate it very much. You're the best. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Seth. All the best. Thank you. If you want me to stay, I'll be around today to be available for you to see. I'm about to go. To stay, I got to be me. You'll never be in doubt. That's what it's all about. You can't take me for granted and smile.